do this. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, a very pleasant good morning to you. I'm running a little bit behind because I have a little behind because I rebound, but don't get me started. Good morning. This is Patrick Timpone, OneRadioNetwork.com. And uh, the gentleman you saw in that handsome picture there, like this one right here, is Fred Jaszewski. Fred is uh, uh, um, a new mysticist. He deals with gold and silver coins, and you're going to meet him. He's on the first Wednesday of every month. And uh, it is Groundhog Day, and Fred has a report from Punxsutawney Phil in somewhere in Pennsylvania, Groundhog Day. I was just telling uh, off the air, I said, well, I'm just going to have to watch Groundhog Day tonight just to, because it's a great night to watch it. It'll probably have all-time viewers on, on Netflix. One of y'all, it's just a great, great movie with, uh, uh, what's his name? Whatever, but it's a, it's a wonderful, it's, it's really funny. Uh, uh, I'm studying screenwriting and writing the screenwriting and uh, I have the latest version of The Real World of Money. Oh, I need to send it to Fred. Boy, it's really getting good. And, uh, they use Groundhog Day. They, the screenwriter, uh, screenwriting gurus, use Groundhog Day as one of the, their examples in, in the structure of a, of a great movie. And it is. So just in case you're going to write screenplays, watch Groundhog Day about 20 times and you'll get a lot better at it. Fred Dashevsky is here. Fred, good morning. Uh, Fred has a couple of things. Um, but first off, Fred, I want to tell people about you. You are... Um, a nice gentleman who runs a company called U.S. Coin Capital. You've been in the business for, what, 30? 39 years. Th- uh, but who's counting? But who's counting? 39 years. You were partnered up with our good friend Andrew Goss, who uh, left us three years ago uh, last week, right? Something like that. Really, really close First, to it. Yeah. January 21st. Boy, do you miss Andrew as much as I? Well, I'm sure you do. I, oh, I, sure. I, every I miss day. him every day. It's like, sometimes I think about him. I, now you're going to get me start to cry. No, don't get me going here. Yeah, what a what a swell guy. What, how did you meet Andrew, uh, who left us three years ago? Uh, believe it or not, we actually both started to work at the same uh, numismatic coin company about two weeks apart. I got a job working for a company. Um, two weeks later, they hired a new guy, and that was Andy. And uh, uh, he and I pretty much hit it off right from the start. And yeah. we were the young kids on the block, and you know, just started studying the industry together. And you know, both were uh, dedicated to kind of learning the, the the new world that we had ventured into. And yeah, yeah it started both a, a long term business relationship and friendship that lasted, you know, thirty five plus years. Wow. And what year was that, Freddie, when you when you first met? Nineteen eighty two. Eighty two. Wow. Yeah. God I love him. That rascal, I don't know what, what he was thinking when he left us, you know. What's up with that? Boy. You just can't explain those things, can you? Yeah. Yeah, I miss him. We you should you should see some of the emails I get. I to this day. I sure do miss Andrew, but I'm listening to the archives. Yeah, we sure. Oh man, yeah. Wow. So, what did Punxsutawney Phil say? It's Groundhog Day. What did he say? I, I didn't. I didn't get uh, the report. Well, I'm, I've heard this only secondhand. Okay. So I, I, so didn't, I mean, didn't watch the actual event, and somebody else had you know posted it. But apparently, he's determined that yeah, we're stuck with winter for another six weeks. But 
you know, given what's happening in the Northeast this week, that didn't come as much as a surprise <laughs> to me. Right. But uh, yeah. you guys whatever know. it's worth now, if we're really paying attention to a rodent to determine the future of our weather, uh, we have to accept the notion that, uh, yeah, yep. according to Punxsutawney Phil, six more weeks of winter, kids. Do you guys got a lot of uh, up in the Northeast? Now, you're, you're south in Hilton Head. But up in the Northeast, yes. you have still friends up there, and they're getting a lot of snow up there? Yeah, friends and family said, you know, anywhere from a foot to two feet is yeah. what they've already had. And uh, it wasn't a real big problem. It was, you know, something they deal with all the time. And, you know, apparently they uh, have a well-organized mechanism for addressing it. They clear the roads pretty quickly. Within a day or so, things were sort of functioning back to normal. But, yeah. you know, the pictures that I saw were... You know, when you're down here in the south, it doesn't snow. So, you know, you forget what it's like when a foot of snow comes out overnight. Right. You wake up the next morning and, you know, all you see is the snow covering your, your car and you can't clearly see the road. You can't define where the road starts and the curb ends. And I don't miss it. Honestly, uh, you know, I prefer the mild winters that we have down here. Doodle, is that you? Somebody knocking on my door? I don't think so. She'd be barking. Uh, Fred Jaszewski is with us. If you care to join us, our 800 lines are working. Knock on wood, 888-663-6386, email patrick at oneradionetwork.com. Not far from the northeast U.S. is Ottawa. We've been posting some uh, pictures of the, of the whole trucking thing going on, and it's really amazing. I, you've seen some of the photos of what's happening up there? I have. Whoa, uh, man. You know, we had talked last year, last time we had yeah. been on, or the last two episodes, uh, about the supply chain problem. And, Ooh. you know, sure enough, this has really become a, a major thing now and you know it's part of the inflationary problem that we've been experiencing but yeah it certainly has turned out to be you know quite a thing well i think they're making some headway because it looks like and there's thousands of them that they're not they're not leaving until trudeau you know takes away all these mandates and all of these passports and all that stuff so it's pretty interesting what's what's going on it's yeah kinda, the power the power of the people the right? power of the people baby yeah uh, it's kind of fun to watch people just get out and do their thing with, in a nice way too, you know, without without violence. You don't need to you don't need to get angry yes. and you know shoot people or anything like that. Just tell people what you want in the world. So um, this supply chain thing, have you you uh, come across anything else that enlightens us? To I've seen a lot of empty empty shelves here at the local H-E-B in Dripping Springs. I mean, a lot. Stuff that I don't generally yeah, buy, but I, you, you know, can walk it, down the aisle, Freddie, and see a lot of empty shelves. It, it got a lot worse throughout much of last year. And, you know, um, I, I know that it, there's two sides of this. So there's the part of it where we're looking at the physical problem. So we, we were talking about a couple of times about how many ships were uh, locked up off the coast yeah. of places like Long Beach and backing up and, you know, not being able to get enough labor to get these ships unloaded and then getting the truckers to take the products off of the cargo ships and finally get them to their final destinations. And, you know, uh, there's that part of it. And then there's the part of it that people were using that, especially the Federal Reserve was sort of using that as an excuse to hmm. justify what was happening in inflation statistics and trying to lay the blame solely on that as opposed to the recognition of all the money that they printed the past, you know, decade or so as being part of the creation of the problem. But if I may, I <laughs> yes, just want to may. read this quick little thing here. <laughs> yes, you may. <laughs> uh, just an interesting little blurb here. The Federal Reserve is about to end America's era of easy money. Ooh. That hmm. is prompting investors to reverse course 
on years of investing strategies, kicking off this month's broad market route, the worst sell-off since the early days of the pandemic. So if anybody has noticed how the stock market has been excessively volatile since the first of the year, we've seen thousand point swings daily on the Dow. Oh, you know, I haven't times. noticed. Has it been that big? I'm, yeah, I'm out of touch It's been that. huge. Really? Ooh. Yeah, we had days the Dow was down a thousand points and then would recover by the end of the afternoon. And the next day it would drop 850 points and recover by the end of the day. We've had day after day of massive volatility because we are completely now changing the uh, direction that the economy is going because the Federal Reserve has reversed what it has been doing the past, well, 12 years, but most importantly, the past two years, which is where it had been driving the economy by pushing money forward by both buying huge amounts of assets and also keeping interest rates ridiculously low. Mm -hmm. It is now reversing those policies. And the impact that that's having has been enormous. Okay, let's let's unpack that for those who are not too familiar. We get new listeners all the time. Uh, again, if you'd like to join us, triple eight six six three sixty three eighty six. Email Patrick at OneRadioNetwork.com. So we have this Federal Reserve Bank, mainly the head bank of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which are owned and operated by the big, the big banks, right? The big boys. Yeah. Uh, Big conglomeration private cartel made up of all the largest banking institutions in the world. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of these central banks. The United States is the Federal Reserve. Uh, Europe has the EU uh, Central Bank of Europe. And these very central banks, um, I'll say interfere, but they try to adjust the economic environment in their particular countries, you know, mostly by adjusting the ease of, of money flow you know okay. whether they what does that mean ease of it. money flow what does that mean exactly well uh, their effort to manipulate an economy is usually based on their ability to change how readily available money is to an average consumer and they do that usually by making money either cheaper or more expensive depending on which direction they want to move it so mm -hmm. the past 12 years and especially since the pandemic broke out in 2020 uh, here in the United States, the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has spent an enormous amount of effort to try to make money readily available and cheap and to drive money into the economy through various uh, economic mechanisms, including their purchase of a lot of debt instruments from the government and from the mortgage security markets. All of this was an effort to try to make money easier to access, cheaper to borrow, and the intent was to try to stimulate economic activity to sort of counteract the slowdown that the economy was Whatever. experiencing yeah. because of the pandemic. Oh, well said. So, but, but Fred, this is, this has not only been since 20, you said oh, five minutes ago that this has really started 12 years ago, this idea of, of easing money, making it more available, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Since, you know, roughly 2012, the Federal Reserve has been on this policy of easing money credit mm -hmm. and interest rates have progressively gotten lower and lower. Um, we were already experiencing a slowdown in the economy. You know, people sort of forget, but remember before Trump became president, as the Obama administration was leaving, the United States was, you know, just months short of, of dipping into a heavy recession. Yes. The economy had slowed down considerably. Unemployment was skyrocketing and economic activity was really struggling to move forward. So the Fed was really pushing hard to try to do what it could to get the economy moving forward. When Trump took over as president, you know, he tried to make whatever efforts he could as president, which are 
you know, there's a limited amount that the president can do, but he did make some efforts by changing policies of things like regulation to companies. So he tried to ease um, the way that businesses right. could conduct commerce as his method of trying to help the economy move forward and institute a few policies that he felt would be productive, you know, things that would move the economy forward. And the Fed continued to assist in driving interest rates progressively lower and lower throughout his administration. And, you know, within short order, there was some change in direction. We actually began to see some progress. Uh, employment numbers began to drop and the economy began to kind of kickstart a little bit. Uh, he gave some big tax credits to a number of people and businesses also as his presidential effort to try to move the economy forward. And th there was some success in that. Unfortunately, it came at a big cost because giving tax credits reduces the amount of revenue that the treasury takes in. So it bloated out uh, the big budget deficits and the debt that the United States was carrying. So it was coming at a cost, but politically that was deemed to be a, a lesser problem than to move the economy forward initially. And yes, the idea would be, Let's try to get things going now, and we'll worry about the problem we create by how we did that later. So, so when when Trump was doing his things, trying to bring business back, Fed, and and uh, get trying to get the um, NAFTA thing straightened out, and and whatever, and getting out of the UN and uh, or the uh, Paris Accord, and all these different things he was doing because he wasn't a man-made global warming believer, was the Fed board which does the interest rate thing, and also the Fed banks, which are private, were they were they s supporting him, or uh, with, what were they trying to do? Were they trying to make his life more miserable, or uh, well, you how know, would I you say? They were, I, I would say they were supporting him. Uh, uh, I would really? say that I don't know that there was a, you know, necessarily a, a decision to say, hey, we support this president, or sure. we don't. But I think they, they recognized that the policies were beneficial and that their intention was their mandate, which is to try to stabilize the economy and, and gain full employment. You know, these are theoretically the Federal Reserve's mandates. It's what they're supposed to be doing. It's right. what their job description basically says. This right. is what their all of their efforts are supposed to try to accomplish. And they basically took uh, the lead from then president trump and said okay you know if he's going to reduce the uh let's say number of um difficulties that businesses were facing and regulatory issues and he's going to reduce some of those and that simultaneously with the fed making money cheaper by lowering rates this should definitely help the economy and again there was some success in that uh although it did come at a, a rather large cost and the then cost was, uh, left, the cost was inflation or, or the, yeah, the bigger deficits. Big inflation on yeah, the rise. Bigger deficits, right? Bigger deficits. Right. Okay. Because we're blowing out the deficit by making big tax cuts. So, you know, again, everything comes at a cost. There's no free way to stimulate an economy because we don't have in America a sound money system. And because we don't have a sound money system, that means that we're basically playing a game, uh, manipulating the economy with a, you know, a very difficult environment where you're dealing with money that isn't really based on anything you can change its value rather quickly uh by inflating it or, or deflating it and again the federal reserve took it upon itself to say we're going to try to do everything we can to get out of the remaining obama administration uh, downtrend in the economy so we're going to support the president in the sense that we're going to maintain low interest rates ease liquidity you know maintain that environment where 
We're going to make it as conducive as possible for individuals and for corporations to get cheap money. Hopefully, again, that would stimulate economic activity. And they were, you know, successful in, in that venture. Uh-huh. Uh, Fred uh, Dashevsky is with us. So all of this new money when they buy mortgage-backed securities and do all these things, where does this money come from? Well, the Fed creates the money out of thin air and oh, uses good it for to purchase them. treasury. Oh, good for them. <laughs> nice job, right? Nice job if you can get it. They they literally, yeah. they literally. Uh, so I'm 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 the uh, the treasury. I need to sell a, I don't know a bill a twenty twenty billion dollars worth of treasury bonds, right? I put them out there, and maybe the street or hedge. Uh, pension funds, they might buy ten billion or something, right? The Fed can then buy ten billion if they want, or nobody wants, right? right? And they, and they literally can and create ten billion on a computer, send over ten billion in digits, and and take the take that ten billion in in treasury bonds. They literally do that. Right. So the treasury's account shows an addition of ten billion dollars. Yes, sir. That treasury note, which pays interest, is then shifted over to the Federal Reserve Bank's balance sheet. That's why when you look at that Fed balance sheet, it continues to grow because as the Fed was buying these assets, those assets ended up on the Fed's balance sheet. And as the Fed continued to make these purchases, its balance sheet began to grow. Uh, we were at about $4.1, 4 dollars $4.2 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet coming into 2020, which was massive. I mean, a, a four-plus trillion-dollar balance sheet for the Fed is enormous. But they continued to add assets starting in 2020 at a much quicker pace than they've been doing before that. Again, because the pandemic created an exacerbated problem, not only were we struggling to move the economy forward, and starting to make just minimal progress. But then the pandemic kicked in and everything began again to slow down and reverse just about everything that had been accomplished. So the Fed accelerated the rate at which it began to purchase these debt instruments. With money that they create on a computer. It's always good to keep telling people how they get this money. Right. Right. They don't have it in the they bank. They continue to create money, <laughs> wow. write a check from a fictitious checking account and continue to purchase debt instruments from the treasury and mortgage securities so they would drive both the stock market and the, the housing market a whole, and the housing market simultaneously and you can and folks if you'd up, like to look at this excuse me Fred let's just tell people they can just uh, duck duck go h41 release and um, it'll mm-hmm. pull it right up and then the latest one is January 26 and if i look here Freddie, they have well are you seeing a year ago the Fred had Fred. I keep saying Fred. The Fed had created about four and a half trillion dollars on their balance sheet, right? Uh, from the last two years, starting two year, around okay. 2020, 2020, the balance sheet was just barely over four point one trillion. It's now at nine trillion. Yes, well, eight point eight, yeah, eight and, and some change, right? Whoa! So in in the last two years, the Fed, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, has created literally. $5 trillion on a computer and bought stuff, whether it be treasury right. bonds, mortgage-backed securities. What else do they buy? What else do they buy? Oh, that, that's the bulk that's of it. it. You know, that represents about 95% of what they do. And, you know, again, the intention there is to try to drive money into the economy to make it available to move economic environments forward. And, you know, unfortunately, when they do this sort of stuff, uh, the, the loser in this game is the individual public 
because we now have to deal with the fact that the money supply has expanded so much by five trillion. It begins to change the nature of, of the money that we are spending, which is what inflation really is. It's you know, I've always said, it, you know, if you look at inflation, it's like a hidden tax. So everybody knows individually that you get your paycheck every week and you know what your gross pay is, but right. you know your paycheck is not that amount because there are deductions from that, right? The, the government takes out various taxes, states, local governments, and federal government taxes come out of your paycheck. You end up with a net after, after all the taxes are pulled out. Well, what's also happening without your knowledge is you're being taxed by this thing called inflation, which is when the Federal Reserve prints money, and again, it's all unbacked because there's no standard anymore, and they put more money into the economy, they're inflating the value of the existing money, so effectively you're being taxed again. But that tax doesn't show up. It doesn't show up as a line item on your check. You don't see it. You don't see it. And that amount that that inflation is taxing your money varies depending upon the needs of the government. And right now, inflation is soaring at levels we haven't seen since the 1980s because the way the Federal Reserve chose to try to move the economy forward, we're now paying for that in the result of this inflated dollar. Uh, well said. Uh, so, Fred, so, so let's say we don't even know what the total money supply is any longer. They've taken all... Most we're close. Of, uh, yeah, according you- to the last statistics, it's grown 40%. In two years. That's, I mean, that's, so if you want a game show, well, yeah, if you want a game show, what do you think the total money supply of dollars would be? Can you even fathom a guess? Uh, you know, it's got to be in the $35 trillion oh, range now. At least, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's extraordinary, but a, a 40% increase in money supply in two years, again, effectively, if the economy doesn't grow, that's like a 40% inflation rate. Of course, we don't experience that because the economy absorbs some of it, right. <clears throat> some of that through economic growth. And the economy is growing, you know, maybe uh, optimistically 5 or 6% a year. So maybe 10 or 12% of that 40 has been absorbed by economic growth. But the balance is being felt by the public in inflationary pressures. And inflation eventually turns into higher prices. That's the end result of the expansion of the monetary, the, money. Yeah, the monetary system. So people, <laughs> excuse me. So people say, "Oh, the meat guy is raising his prices, or the milk guy, or whatever, the chicken guy, or whatever is going up." But it's really more dollars chasing a uh, same quantity of goods same, and services. Or, same kind of uh, quantity of goods and services, and then I guess when you add in the supply chain stuff and you know we've kind of gone over why that is and why all these containers are still out in the middle of the Atlantic a lot of different reasons then there's there's less goods right 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 so the problem becomes even more exacerbated and it becomes clearer i mean i i said this at one point i don't know if it was the last show or the show before this um it sounded absurd but i said that the average person is going to experience from 2020 till probably middle of this year, roughly a 30% increase in the cost of the average goods and services that they buy. You're going to be close. I bet you're going to be right. And I think I'm going to be close. <laughs> wow. um, because some things have gone up 200%, you know, and some things have gone up 12%. But I think on an average basis, I don't know anybody who anecdotally has not experienced higher prices already. You know, and with the supply chain problem, 
you're going to have to have costs go up on goods and services. And it's sort of a byproduct of what we've done, but it is not helping the Federal Reserve, which is, you know, interesting, spent this time last year denying inflation as a problem. <laughs> Rem- I don't know if you remember, but at this do. time last year, I, I, Chairman no, Powell said no inflation was about 2.1%, right. would end the year at about 2.3%. And any inflation that we were experiencing, you know, was a non-issue. By the spring of last year, he began to slightly change his position to say, we're beginning to see some signs of inflation, but we're not concerned about it uh, because we think it's just going to be temporary and right. it's mostly due to the supply chain problems, which will fade away. By the summer of last year, his concern about inflation began to somewhat shift to where he began to have a hard time supporting the notion that the inflation was transitory. And by the fall of last year, he completely gave up the idea of trying to push the concept of transitory inflation and literally said they were retiring the word because they'd given up the idea that they could push out to the public this idea that this inflation was going to dissipate. And then the reality by the end of the year became clear. And instead of the 2.3% that they anticipated, we ended up at 7% inflation by December of this past year. I just had the weirdest noise. It's still going on. I don't know what it is. Do you hear anything? No. Hold on a second. I don't know what it is. I think it was an alien, Fred. <laughs> Aliens are coming, coming to visit. They're coming to get you, Patrick. coming to get John Williams, I go to his place every now and then, Freddie. He's uh, run shadow stats. And, you know, okay. he, he's saying the, the inflation rate today is about 15%. He's probably close, well, right? you know, I think he's close. To, now, remember, the government mm-hmm. has statistics that they produce that are seriously cooked. You know, we, we've no. talked about that for years. How I'm shocked. The numbers that they push out are as low as possible because... Uh, number one, they don't want to alarm people. Uh, they don't want to alarm the economy. And, you know, look at what's happening to the stock market as inflation reality has begun to show its ugly head. You know, now, again, everybody has to anticipate if there is more inflation in the economy than what was expected, that means the Fed policy has to change. So from this state of easy money policy that has continued for more than a decade And again, especially the past two years, the idea that the Fed has been on a concept of saying everything we're going to do is to make money more readily available. They are now completely reversing their position and they're moving toward now tightening the money supply. Now, this is a big deal, right? This is a real reversal, a real reversal. Yes, complete reversal. So I anticipated Hmm. that as the Fed was forced to address the inflationary problem, we were going to experience some some real significant issues, starting with the stock market, which had benefited, especially the past couple of years with Fed policies being what they were. It was very conducive for the stock market to have a Federal Reserve Bank behind them, not only pumping money every month, you know, buying all these assets, but keeping money ridiculously low and cheap. That was very good for the stock market. And I was concerned last year about how would the stock market react once the Federal Reserve was not driving economic environment the way it had been with easy money liquidity. What happens when they stop doing that? Or, 
God forbid, what happens if they absolutely reverse their position and instead they start tightening the money supply by raising interest rates and slowing down their asset purchases. And just as I expected now, look at what's happening to the stock market. You know, again, it has been extremely volatile since the first of the year. And in many cases, a lot of stocks have lost a considerable amount of value. And I think this is going to be a year the stock market's going to struggle because we're back now to actual earnings of companies as opposed to, you know, these companies are going to thrive regardless of whether or not they have earnings because there's so much cheap liquidity available. So um, so when they raise interest rates, the Powell and his, his team, they make it more expensive for for banks to to actually uh, get uh, borrow money from the Fed that they own, which is weird. But anyway, and then and then guys like you might go to the bank and Patrick and say, "I need," and then our uh, it's, cost goes up. Our cost goes up, so we might not borrow as much, and we might not get into the market as as much is that kind of how well the other part of it is the corporations also act the same way and so they're just bigger than an individual but a lot of the technology companies you know thrive on buying cheap money today to be able to throw into research and development for tomorrow i see and the more of that cheap liquidity they can get the better that they can produce new products because they have the uh, ability to utilize capital that they can get really cheap and try to produce new products and services. But as the cost of that money goes up, you know, these technology companies face a serious problem. And, you know, many companies have been running on uh, profit and earnings that have been extraordinarily large, but a lot of it is due to the fact that they had access to cheap money when that now all comes to an end because the Fed policy has reversed. The Fed is going to slow down and completely halt its asset purchases and has stated that as soon as March, it's going to make its first interest rate hike, which we haven't seen in quite a while. It's been more than a decade since the Fed has raised right. rates. But uh, the Fed remains, uh, uh, Fred, the, the lender of last resort. So if there's not enough mm-hmm. people ready to buy treasury bonds that the government still has to do because uh, we're, what, is a trillion and a half deficit every year? Is it that much somewhere around there? Yeah. So, so we the people are going to be borrowing a trillion and a half. And so the government's need for money has not dissipated. Yeah, exactly. you know, and now it's going to create an interesting problem, right? So if the Fed doesn't buy that debt, who will? And how does that now work if the federal government still is bleeding money on a regular basis mm-hmm. if they don't have that support coming from the Fed? So we have that along with the carrying costs of the existing debt also increasing rather substantially as interest rates go up. Because remember, you know, if you owe... $10,000 and interest rates go up, let's say a point, you know, it might change your monthly payment on that $10,000 in a minimal amount. But if you're carrying $35 trillion worth of debt and interest rates go up a point, your carrying costs have increased rather substantially. And that is going to require the government to raise more revenue. And how do they raise revenue? Well, they can tax you or they can have the Federal Reserve print more money if they can't you know, successfully do it through raising taxes. And raising taxes is difficult when you have an economy that's moving slowly because you don't want to slow down the economic environment by, again, you know, reversing, let's say, the Trump's mentality of 
making life more conducive for businesses by lowering regulation. You don't want to increase regulatory issues in an economy that's already struggling. So the, the Fed is in a very difficult position at this point. Yeah. So, so um, the Fed wouldn't, do they get to the position where they actually say, we don't want your treasuries and you're just going to have to raise interest rates so more people will buy them off the, off the street? Is that what happens? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know how strong the Fed will be on that point. Yeah. Uh, these are the decisions that are made in those internal meetings at the Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. But, sure. um, you know, I know that the Fed has definitely faced a complete reversal of its position from a year ago. And the reality has kicked in. And now they have to, let's say, devise a new plan. You know, how do they address that issue? It's a, it's a great question. What do they do? If the economy is still slowly moving forward, but the government still has a need for, you know, to, to raise money, you know, how do they manage both of these things simultaneously? And I, again, I, I find this is extremely problematic. And I think the value of money is going to experience a dramatic decrease, both because I think in the end, printing money is the only real option. I don't think they can raise enough through increasing taxes to supply the gap between what the government spends and what it takes in. No, I so mean, I you'd have to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to raise problem. taxes a trillion dollars. That's not going to happen. I mean, they would storm the castle, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not now, you can do that if the economy is really strong. Sure. You know, if you have a really, you know, a- aggressively growing economic environment, if GDP is, you know, 10 or 12%, the economy could sustain a tax increase. You know, it can sustain a higher interest rate environment. But, we're barely struggling to get this economy moving forward for the first time in, let's say, two years. And after 12 years of easy money policy, now that the Fed is reversing that, we are in a completely new world now. And we're going to have to see going forward how this year is going to play out without the Fed. You know, uh, they call it taking the punch bowl away from the party. And that's exactly what we're about to experience. Yeah. Uh, Fred Dashevsky in the real world of money. So, so if if we take the position that there's no um, there's no end in sight to how much well, I mean, why don't they just let me put it this way? Why don't they just keep creating the money? And what do they care if you and I are paying more for our chicken? I mean. Why don't they well, just keep the doing that? Is inflation, is, inflation is an economic problem that the Fed doesn't want to ex- have the economy experience because, uh, you know, this is the thing that the public actually sees. Right. You know, Fed policy behind the scenes, all these things we talk about, most people don't experience it in the real world. They don't, they don't feel this in their life until the after effects of these policies begin to filter through. So... Mm-hmm. One of the after effects of Fed policy is an inflationary issue that drives consumer prices higher. And you'll notice that as consumer prices start going up, you know, people are going to squeak a lot more. And you're going to hear a lot more complaints from people about the fact that, you know, why are costs going up? And we haven't even talked about the labor side of this. You know, wages are going to have to go up to compensate an average employer, employee, uh, who is now experiencing the need for more money. You know, he can't make ends meet if he's still earning the same amount if all the costs of everything he buys is going up. His rent is going up. His food is going up. His energy costs are going up. His mortgage payments are going to increase. All of these things are experienced by the public, and inflation is generally 
not conducive for a good environment for uh, the economics. And they're going to try to prevent the public from experiencing the inflationary problem as much as they can. And I would suspect then the people uh, that would be um, interested in keeping Mr. Biden in or whatever from the political end, they're going to be pushing on the other side to try to keep inflation down too because you don't want to run whatever you're going to do in 2024 or even, I guess, even this November. It's just hard politically. Yeah. Nobody wants to be like Jimmy Carter in nineteen, right. you know, seventy nine and eighty, where you're you're being hailed as the uh, reason why we're all paying so much more to buy, you know, gas and, right. and and wages have to go up because nobody can make ends meet anymore. It politically is not very positive for your political party if the public holds you liable for the inflation problem. So people love it when things get cheaper or when money is available, you know, at low rates, but they will hold the political party accountable if costs are going up. So, you know, inflation not only has an economic impact, it has a political impact. And it's going to be really difficult for the political party in power, you know, to stand up to the public outcry if they let inflation run rampant. So they are trying to control it as much as possible. And it's like walking a tightrope with a big wind blowing. I mean, this is a really tricky game that they're playing. And You know, the Fed has got to try to do this without making a big error. Let's say they overdo it and raise rates too aggressively to fight inflation. They could end up stagnating the economic growth too much and then throw the economy into a recession. And they don't have a lot of room to lower rates quickly to recover from that. So the Fed has to create this balance of fighting inflation, but not too quickly maintaining the ability for the government to keep the amount of money it needs without over over printing uh, you know tr- create just enough inflation for the economy to grow but not too much to hmm. you know piss people off yes sir i agree to, uh, anton scheitgen uh, is going to be here a little bit later on he's a historian and he has a, a book called who we are america's fight for universal progress from franklin to kennedy and he believes that the United States is betraying their heritage by threatening World War III against Russia and China. You know, and that's interesting. And we're going to talk with Anton in about an hour and a half or so. And Fred, you know, this all this uh, saber rattling with Russia is causing oil prices to go up and the gas prices to go up. So whoever controlling Mr. Biden, uh, they're not helping the situation at all either. Well, no. I mean, so not only do we have economic environment and and conditions that are altering the economy and the nature of what we're paying for goods and services, there are also geopolitical problems. You know, we've had like in the 80s, the Shah of Iran or, you know, we have difficulty situations uh, in, in almost every decade. And as you mentioned, you know, if there are issues with Russia, people sort of read through that to mean that, you know, it's a threat to the oil supplies and prices for oil could increase so you know oil again has been the biggest biggest commodity you know in the world uh, for the last hundred years until the past five years oil was the largest most valuable commodity on earth it has only been recently subverted by information believe it or not is now the new oil but outside of that oil remains as a very powerful part of the cost in an economy. And if anything threatens the supply of oil, 
you know, speculators will believe that oil prices will go up. And, you know, that means that that gallon of gas is going to go up more and more, even without the inflationary pressures that are already behind it. So these things don't help the situation. They just make things a lot worse. And, you know, we don't really have a lot of ability to withstand a big problem if we get into it with Russia that's going to create, you know, a situation where oil prices go skyrocketing high because suddenly we're losing control. Putin's out today saying, hey, man, you guys are just trying to goad us into war. You know, we're, we're talking with Ukraine. You know, the Ukrainian people are saying, you know, you guys want to chill out. And boy, who's who's ever controlling Biden? They're not having it. They, they want to get in with something with these people. Maybe maybe they think it'll help them in, 20, in this November or something, Fred. I don't understand their thinking, but, you know. Who, well, I, I think a lot of that is political nonsense. In other course. words, you know, they're putting out into you know, the world, this is what they think, or this is what they believe is, you know, uh, honestly, I I don't buy it. I I think that Russia knows very well what it's doing. And I don't think, (laughs) uh, you know, that they're just sitting there in the background saying, oh, we're not creating any problem. There's no reason for the United States to be talking about this. It's not a real issue. Of course, it's a real issue. And of course, Russia is threatening Ukraine. And of course, you know, the idea that Russia is an innocent party and you know, being, uh, you know, unfairly blamed for their actions. That's nonsense. Of I, course. I don't buy that and, 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 you know, Russia has contended from the beginning that the whole breakup of the Soviet Union was an illegal action, and he really thinks he owns Ukraine. I mean, he does. He just does. So I don't know what you're going to deal with. But do you think it's our business? It's not our business, is it? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. A lot of people have asked that. Is it our business? The United States business? We're a world economy, so we are sort of subject to the results. I guess there's, you know, there's the thought that you don't want somebody running amok out in Europe or, you know, and just simply taking over countries arbitrarily. I guess the United States feels compelled to help protect the weaker party there. But I think you and I would probably agree (laughs) it always comes down to money, right? Yeah, right. So I think this is more about a fear in the United States that as Russia moves forward and, you know, let's say taking over Ukraine, it, it is a threat to oil supplies and, you know, provides a problem that will end up putting Russia in a position where they have better control over the world's oil market. And the United States deems that as a economic threat. So they're going to push back and, and as an excuse course stand up and say oh it's the poor ukrainian people that we're concerned about i don't think the united states gives a shit really (laughs) i i think their their concern is economics it it always is and there's a whole a pipeline thing as you know fred going through germany and uh, european gas coming from russia and the united states has their own agenda with the this lng stuff that they want to sell over there so there's a lot of moving parts to this baby that... Uh, oh, sure is. Yeah. But I, I do believe in the end, if we stripped down everything, <laughs> uh, the rationale for the United States having any concern over what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine has to do with you know economics. It's always about the money. And it's not about our protection of the you know under underfunded or under-armied people in Ukraine not being able to fight back against the big, powerful Russian army. It sounds nice. It makes a much better, you know, political statement and sure. a better, uh, you know, kind of communication of what we're trying to do. It makes us look like a good guy. You know, and again, it's not that we're not. It's just that that's not really what's going on. It's, it's all about the money. It's always about the money. 
Fred, always uh, about the money. You're lucky you don't sell used cars or homes today. You sell gold and silver. Yeah. Let's talk about your yeah. company here. Um, this was a company that you and Andrew Goss, our dear friends, started long ago. Then when Andrew left us, you had to regroup, right? Uh, reboot, renovate yourself, and now you're a U.S. coin capital, right? That's your company now. Tell that us about our company. So, tell us about what you guys are up to new now. Company, yeah. um, you know, uh, we're in the same industry, but a lot of things have changed in how we conduct commerce now and how we work with our customers. Even the products that we're dealing with have shifted somewhat. The basic concepts have remained the same, which is that the idea we've always had, which was that. You know, in an uncertain economic environment where you can't control the rate of inflation because the central bank that creates the money that we all have to spend uh, doesn't answer to the public. So we're just subject to, to the result of whatever they do. And since we have no control over that, I've always believed that people should diversify a little bit of their wealth into something that would provide them with wealth protection and wealth protection being if we know inflation is going to strip the value of paper money down little by little going forward, it certainly makes a lot of sense not to leave 100% of your long-term money in this form of paper that's being diluted, especially if the rate that that money is being diluted is accelerating. Meanwhile, the reverse is true for those that hold gold and silver coins. The more inflation that we create in the economy the more valuable those gold and silver coins that you're buying now become as time moves forward. Hmm. So it provides a great counterbalance. And I think this needs to be something that every American putting money away for, you know, the next four or five years or longer has to have some form of physical wealth making up a portion of their invested capital. And that's why I firmly believe people should own gold and silver in the form of United States gold and silver coins minted by the government because they cannot be reproduced. In other words, whatever supplies of them are available to be purchased now are based upon what was already made and production has already ended. In fact, on the silver, it ended in 1964 hmm. and on gold, it actually ended back in 1933. So as those supplies get smaller, as more people put these things away and you know, many don't resell, they leave them for families or put it away for generations and you know, some people just hold on to this stuff indefinitely. There's less of it available as we move forward and more paper money being printed as we move forward. Those things working together would provide a great benefit for people accumulating physical gold and silver. And, and that's what I think Americans need to do. Uh, if you're watching on video, uh, we're showing a picture of uh, some pre-1964 uh, five dimes, quarters and half silver dollars. And then he has uh, some pictures of the the real American money, the old coins in these plastic cases. Now, this is what you sell as numismatic coins only that were uh, produced by the mint, the United States mint. Um, Correct. Why, why don't you sell like a, I don't know, a 10-ounce bar of silver or... Uh, one pound thing of gold or something like that? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, let me st first say that any physical form of gold and silver is is got to be better than paper money. You, you know any what I mean? Form, so of course. Yeah. Any form of gold and silver. But within the forms of gold and silver, the reason I like the, um, the U.S. coins as opposed to those bars and the bricks it comes down to really two things. The first one is, is that 
in the bars and the bricks, they're all the same. So, you know, if you have a 10 ounce bar that you buy that was minted yesterday, or if you have one that was minted 20 years ago, they have exactly the same value. There's no difference. They're all ubiquitous. Every one of them is identical. And as long as we keep mining the physical metal, more of those bars can continually be produced. Uh-huh. If you compare that to a quarter or a dime or half dollar that was minted, you know, up to 1964, they can't produce more of them. So the supply is fixed. And that is a huge advantage for an investor because what will happen is not only will the growth occur in that silver coin as the silver price itself increases, which would benefit both that bar and the silver coin, but the silver coin value will also increase more as its premium will continue to grow when supply and demand characteristics make it more difficult to keep getting quantities of these things as time marches forward. And that's been proven by you know, the increasing value in various harder to get coins that have slowly first just barely slightly exceeded value above their melt content to some that have gained so much value beyond their melt content that they're hardly even attached to the price of the metal anymore. The other reason I prefer the coins is that the U.S. government has put these two things into different brackets. All of those bars and everything that we call bullion, which are things that are not legal currency of the U.S., like the coins, they are referred to as bullion. And the bullion market is federally regulated already, which means that if you are a seller of that product, you have to understand it. You have to give out your social security number. The dealer buying it has to file a 1099B, forward that to Internal Revenue Service with your name, your address, your social security number, the amount you sold, and that is immediately reported to the federal government as a transaction, which means that that has to also be matched by what you report on your tax records. Otherwise, you have a real fundamental problem. And as the government regulates an industry, they start putting more and more regulations into a market they make it less conducive for the average investor and they make it a real pain for us as dealers requiring us to file these forms and to know our customers and to follow the anti-money laundering rules that require me to know that money given to me for bullion transactions has come from a legitimate resource. And if it turns out that was not the case, that somehow the money that was used to buy bullion was illegally obtained I, as a dealer, because I was involved in providing the product to the customer, am also regulated by that and, and will be liable for any of that transaction problem. So I don't like to be federally regulated. I don't like to have to report private information on my customers on the transactions they do. And with the U.S. coins, the pre-65 dimes, quarters, halves, and the pre-33 gold, I'm not required to file any forms with any government agencies on any of the transactions, regardless of the volume. It's Hmm. up to the individual to report his own gains or losses. Interesting. So um, I'm wondering, you know, we've talked about, and Andrew taught us years ago, that you all knew, you and Andrew knew, that the price of gold and silver spot prices that we see today are, are, are controlled, right? They're always selling a chart trying to keep the gold and silver prices down like if i look at the chart right now on kitco uh, gold is 18.10 up eight bucks silver is 22 dollars up 10 cents these prices are are systematically controlled right to keep them down because they don't like to keep the the spot price up because people get freaked out 
kind of sort of well the same way that they try to control the inflation statistics same you know way. they don't want gold running like crazy if gold's five thousand an ounce it's a pretty bad reflection on the dollar <laughs> if you think about it <laughs> you know right. the price of gold and silver right in the end uh, they're kind of a a reverse image of the u.s dollar so if the dollar strengthens the price of gold and silver will dip that day right and if the dollar drops that day then the price of gold and silver will rise and again, this, these are daily things. They're not permanent. Like the dollar will rise sometimes for a few days and then fall back. And, you know, some people ask, why does the dollar go up and down? Well, again, the dollar is basically judged against a basket of other foreign currencies. So if we look a little better than what's happening in the rest of the world, we may see some temporary strengthening in the value of the dollar. It's perception yeah. uh, increases. Mm -hmm. And there is that dollar index I've uh, referred to as a great way if anybody just wants to get a snapshot of, you know, how relatively strong or weak is the dollar today compared to, let's say, a month ago or a week ago or yesterday, you can follow that dollar index. And, you know, it had drifted into the low 90s. It was like 92, 93. And now it's today, rallying. It's yeah. like 96 at this point. Today. Last time I looked yesterday. Yeah. So the dollar is relatively strong because the rest of the world is suffering economic slowdown. And maybe their central banks are not acting as aggressively as the Federal Reserve, and their economies are not recovering as quickly as America. So we look better than the way a lot of other foreign but, countries but do. But how do you it. explain that? I mean, uh, the, the Looney Tune things that the people do, creating all this 40%, uh, the increase the uh, money supply 40% right. in the last three years, with backed by nothing, is nothing but F-16s and nukes, I guess, and the people around the world still love dollars the best. How do you explain that? Well, think about what's happening in Turkey or Argentina, you know, look Brazil, at what they're experiencing, yeah. right? Or Brazil, right? So they've lost control so much of their economy that instead of a 40% increase, they have a 140% increase. Or instead of a 7% inflation that we're experiencing, or if we accept the notion of uh, the other gentleman you mentioned who suggested 15% inflation, yeah, imagine Williams. if it was 30 yeah. or 40%. Yeah. Yeah. So there are other countries that are experiencing it much worse than here. And therefore, you know, we are, as we used to say, the cleanest, dirty shirt in the laundry. Don't you love I that mean, one? The cleanest, dirty shirt. They all stink. <laughs> you know, it's just some of them are, you know, covered in oil and crap. And some of them, eh, there's still a spot of clinging on the sleeve, you know. That, so, so back to what we you, are. Back to what you sell. Um, uh, so here, I've been wanting to ask you this. So a couple of years ago, I mean, gold, I don't know what it was two years ago, the spot price, maybe 16, I don't know. Can you guess two years ago? Or? Yeah, you know, you go back a couple of years, it was 1600, 1600. you go back to you know, so, 1200 a few years earlier. So if I had a uh, one of your favorite uh, genre of coins or these, uh, um, uh, which ones are you the most? No. Well, like $20 gold coins are probably the most popular yeah, investment $20 gold, gold coin yeah, we deal yeah. with. Yeah, so but has their price in the last two years increased more than like a St. Gaudens increased more than the $200 increase in gold? That's what I'm trying yes. to get out. Just took me a while to get there. Okay. <laughs> Have they? Yes. Wow. Because? Because there's a limited availability of them and uh. the more demand we have that strips that, the more that premium begins to grow. Uh, there were certain coins that went up, even like silver dollars, you know, high-grade mint condition silver dollars, which are 
you know, uh, this is going to sound oxymoronic, but they are a relatively common rare coin. Hmm. And I, what I mean by that is if you wanted to buy a 100-year-old, very high-quality mint condition silver dollar, you could buy 100 of them. You could buy 500 of them without too much difficulty. And their prices increased several hundred dollars a coin uh, in the top grades and, you know, 40 or $50 a coin in the high mint condition grades without without more than the two or three dollar movement in the price of silver really so, over the last uh, two years they've gone up that yeah. much silver dollars whoa yeah. we had morgans in 64 we were offering for i want to say 95 to 100 bucks that are now 120 dollars hmm. mint state 65s that were 175 to 185 dollars a coin are now 240 to 250 a coin and that's all happened in the last two years and silver has only moved you know, a couple bucks. So now this is not, again, yeah, and these are not these are not price increases that Fred sits there at U.S. Coin Capital say, oh, well, that's just where you. This is what you have to pay for them. I mean, you have yeah. Th- I mean, this the national is, market. This is the way it goes. You know, forces prices to go up. You know, the coin market is a vast market. Yeah. it is a very large industry. Huge. It does billions upon billions and billions of dollars every year in transactions, Whoa. and demand has exploded in the past few years as more and more people become aware of the reality of inflation and and more people are, let's say, uh, disconcerted with the nature of the way the stock market operates. And again, I think more people this year are going to become aware of a fundamental problem in the stock market because, again, without the Fed making monetary policy easing uh, <laughs> status, they're going to make mon- monetary policy tightening the current status, and that is not going to be good for the stock market. So as more people experience either lack of growth or even worse, losses in stocks, they're going to look to alternatives. And I think demand is going to grow for physical gold and silver coins, which it should. And that will drive prices even higher. I got you. Here's an email from Loretta. I'm a big fan of your show, Patrick. And we have a lot of people in Canada that listen. Yeah, I know you do. We sell a lot of products to Canada but she wants to know what does she buy up there? Can Fred send us coins to Canada? I can't. Uh, I you have can't. a lot of people. Well, I wish that you could, man. We've got we a lot of ship to Canada. We've got a lot of we Canadian listeners. Woo, man. We do. Um, I've turned out an awful lot of business from people that I would love to have worked with, but we you just can't, can't do uh, it. We're just basically. It's just. It's a logistical problem of getting stuff across borders, and um, we've attempted to do it a couple of times throughout the years. And yeah, again, it's it's. It just turned out to not really work. So, unfortunately, I would say uh, we can't help, but uh, that doesn't prevent somebody in Canada from being able to buy, you know, Canadian silver coins or Canadian gold coins. And again, any form of physical metal that one buys has got to be better than any form of paper money that people are holding since, you know, there's no limit on how much money can be printed. And at least gold and silver have real value. So, in Canada, for our listeners up there, and I know we have lots, um, would they be then better off as here to purchase Canadian minted coins rather than just bullion, silver, or gold, in, even in places like Canada? I, I would think so. Um, okay. I haven't really dug deeply into how strong the Canadian coin market is, but I would imagine the same principles apply that you know a slightly rarer coin will fare a little bit better than you know just your generic ounce of silver. But, you know, look, the Canadian Maple Leaf is a extremely popular bullion product around the world. You know, its purity is amongst the best in the world. Is it? 
And again, I think it's far better to own that than just banking on the paper note itself. Yeah. What is the uh, the purity of uh, these silver dollars that you sell? Um, what, what, how much silver is in these bad boys, Freddie? Well, uh, American coins are slightly different because unlike bullion products, which tend to be just the pure metal itself, American coins were always minted with a percentage of other trace metals because their intent when they were being produced was people were going to spend them as money. So they wanted to make them more stable. And, you know, pure metal, pure silver, pure gold is actually fairly soft. You know, it'll it'll chip, it'll bend fairly easily. And in order to make it uh, a little more firm, a silver dollar, for example, has 90% of its uh, metal content, pure silver. But additionally, there's about 10% of trace metal built into it, as is the case with gold coins. Just to hold where, it together. Just to hold it together. Yeah, just to make it a little more firm. So if you <laughs> took a $20 gold coin, it actually has like 0.98 ounces of pure gold. But if you weighed it, it weighs 1.1 ounces. The extra weight is made up of copper. Uh-huh which was added to the gold coin, again, in order to make it a little more stable so that, you know, it could be handled and stacked at the banks and it wouldn't chip and, you know, and dent so readily. So purity is not really a big issue when it comes to acquiring metals. I know some people say uh, things about, oh, it's 999 fine and that's what you need. I'm like, that's nonsense. It's like saying a piece of wood is 999 wood. Well, of course it is. (laughs) You know, stuff that's made out of metal is made out of metal. Uh, You know, no one's producing a 50% silver coin yes, that only half of it is so it's either silver or it's not so you know in the american coins you have the traditional pure silver on top of which there's always a bit of trace metal uh, and th- those purities are outlined in in a, a book it's called the guidebook of united states coins the red book i send a copy of this to every one of our customers so that they can actually look up you know the actual amount so for example the silver dollar you asked about if you took a Morgan silver dollar, which was the type of silver dollar minted 1878 to 1921, there's 0.77 ounces of pure silver in a silver dollar. And the balance of its weight is made up of the intrinsic metal. I see. And your the website is uscoincapital.com, correct? US, yes. uscoincapital.com. Your phone number is up here, 800-878-2646. This is George. I'm thinking of buying some coins from Fred if and when I do, or when and if I do, he says if and when I do, can I put them in a safe deposit box? Thanks for the show. Yes, oh, you can. absolutely. You're pretty good with that. I thought Andrew <laughs> no, told us that he wasn't that. hot for that. Do you differing from his opinion? Uh, no? I, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear you. I thought I remember Andrew suggesting that that wasn't the best. So you're differing in your opinion on that. Yeah. Okay. You know, look, uh, after 39 years of doing this, we've yet to experience anybody that's ever had a problem putting gold or silver coins in a safety deposit box. Keep in mind, uh, the general fear is that, let's say somebody feels to me, what happens if a bank fails? Well, first of all, what's in a safety deposit box is not part of the bank assets. It's not. It is not. So if a bank fails, it has absolutely nothing to do with what's in the safety deposit boxes. A safety deposit box in a bank is merely uh, a way of storing something that theoretically is going to be harder for a thief to get. <laughs> well, yeah, to they can't bank into the bank home. with two keys like they do in the movies, and you're not going to get in. Right? There. Yeah, it's not going to happen. So if if the choice is you store it in your you know in your desk drawer or you put <laughs> it in a bank, it's going to be much more difficult for a thief to get to it in the bank. So. If the bank should fail, 
everybody will get access to their safety deposit boxes and none of those assets would be added you know, in a foreclosure problem with that banks would experience. Well, that's and that's never cool. been the case. That's and there's cool. never been an issue in American history where people have not been able to get uh, their goods out of a safety deposit box. Who owns the, the only uh, exception? Who owns the safety a, deposit? You know, federal lawsuit against yeah. the person. Who owns the safety deposit thing if it's not the bank? Do you know? Who, who, the well, pe- you know, the safety deposit box, effectively, it's owned by the bank, but they don't own the assets that are in it. They just don't. That's just. You know, it's just a storage facility. They're just acting as a safe place for you to store your goodies so that, again, it would be much harder for a thief to get at your gold coins in a safety deposit box than theoretically in, if it were in your home. Yeah. So I don't think there's any problem you with that. You don't think there I, is? Yeah. No. And I, I don't really think people should worry too much about it. Like I said, we've never experienced a problem with that. I mean, maybe that doesn't mean that there never will be, but I, I don't think for all intents and purposes... Um, it's an issue to really be concerned about. But for those people that, and they're also going to get comfortable with the idea of leaving money in a bank, there are private credit unions, or you can have, you know, a, a safe bolted to your basement floor. You can find some, you know, clever place to store your gold or silver that nobody knows about. Yeah, There are also many options, but I would think for the most part, a safety deposit box is, is not an issue. Yeah. Texas has got this uh, whole gold thing going on. That have you, you know anything about that? They've got this whole gold armory uh, bank thing that people yeah, store in there. Uh, Texas has a massive storage facility yeah. of, of gold that it stores. Wasn't that mostly for, uh, I want to say, one of the universities? Uh, University of Texas, I believe, started yeah. it. But yeah. that'd be pretty safe there, wouldn't it? I mean, sure. Yeah. I'd almost feel safer if I had a bunch. I don't have a bunch, but someday when I do... Places like that rather than at home, you know, if somebody, I don't know, but I guess it's just, but. Well, you got to look at, you know, gold and silver coins are, they're like cash in a way. Sure, I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're a bearer instrument. Anybody can turn them into money who owns them. There's nothing that ties them to an individual. So, you know, if somebody steals your gold coins, they can turn them into money anywhere they want. And obviously then you have to look at it in the same respect and you know, give it the respect it's due. And that is one of the responsibilities of being a gold and silver coin investor is you have to diligently figure out where is a smart and safe place to store your gold and silver coins. But again, I would say Hmm. in in my experience, whatever that's worth, um, a safety deposit box is perfectly fine. Well, you've been in the business a long time. I mean, it'll be a week Thursday, a week Thursday. And, and I guess it would almost be better if you're going to do that to go to some of the big boys like a Chase or a Wells or I don't know because the chances of them go the other way they like their little local bank but if chances of them failing like a Chase is not going to fail I mean come on they own well again the bank failure doesn't impact the safety deposit box okay even if they would and they're not going to right Chase JP Morgan even if they do again banks have failed but it has not impacted what people had in the safety deposit boxes is that huge bank in Germany still on sneaky i haven't heard of much about him what's the name what am i thinking of fred that or the Bundesbank? uh no the other one what's the the bank that there's been always in the in the news for the last two or three years about no one the big german bank no i don't yeah. it's not coming to me well freddie we've done a lot here i tell folks uh, how they can well i'll just put this up here folks would like to reach you and uh 
Are you available by the telephone there? You have a real phone? I am. And people, you know, feel free to give us a call. We'll be happy to, you know, walk you through the process. And, you know, I firmly believe that if we look at this economy objectively, I think any reasonable person would reach the conclusion that paper money is flawed and <laughs> all these economic and geopolitical problems that exist are not going away. And it's prudent to protect one's wealth with a little bit of physical, you know, tangible assets. And, you know, gold and silver coins have proven themselves. Gold and silver have been around, you know, what is it, 6,500 years. And I think it's a great way for people to protect their wealth. An emailer just said, you're thinking of Deutsche Bank. Yeah, Deutsche Bank. That's what I'm thinking of. I was oh, trying okay. to think of, yeah. Have you heard of recently? They, they were in and out of the duck soup for, for years, you know. Yeah. I don't well, you know, the problem with some of these banks is that um, they begin to do things that are risky. Oh, uh, a lot of times they use <laughs> leverage positions to, you know, I, I don't know if you ever watched the show Billions. or oh, you know, my you fave. Some of these. I love Billions. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they basically uh, talk about how a lot of these uh, positions are taken by big funds and banks do the same thing. And a lot of times these are heavily leveraged positions that if the market goes the wrong way on them can cost them quickly huge amounts of money and deutsche bank has found itself on the wrong side of a few trades that <laughs> you know began to question the who was running this place and yes, whether sir. they had their hand on the right on the right direction there and again you know uh, the wrong direction can cost the bank a lot of money very quickly and if they continually find themselves you know, and that's just assuming that they're doing everything legitimately. You know, what if they've gimmicked it themselves and get caught with their hand in the cookie jar? So, you know, again, this is these are issues that come out as a byproduct of manipulating money and manipulating not sound money. If we have sound money, a lot of these things can't happen. Yes. You know, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine recently. He said, well, money is just supposed to be a medium of exchange. And I said, no, I don't agree with that. Money's supposed to be a store of value because I have to earn that money. I can't just simply print it. So it's not merely a matter of convenience for me to buy something from Patrick and hand him this currency. Since I have to labor to earn that dollar, it should not change in value after I've earned it because of some force outside of my control. That's just not right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But... As the old saying goes, though, Fred, I, I guess we just can't get there from here at this point unless, the, right, could we? I mean, what are, what are we alleged to have, 8,000 tons? And if you divide it by the amount of dollars at one to one, I think the latest time we, last time we did the math was gold would be about $100,000 an ounce, you know, and that's just not going to Yeah, I remember that. You know, I remember fly. when we used to say yeah. 50,000. Well, now it's 100,000, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah. You know, we yes. understand that. You can't and do that, This right? has always been my premise, is that, you know, we had a standard on the dollar. It was exactly there to prevent, you know, political or banks from changing the nature of the value of money without the public's ability to uh, know or do something about it. And that was the original concept the country was founded on when it came to our monetary policy, was not to have interference in money's value because of political pressure or banking pressure. So we removed that possibility by making a gold and silver standard. So 1930, 1932, you could walk into a bank and uh, present them with the dollar and actually get 
It's an equivalent a silver modern, dollar. A silver dollar. Yeah. Whoa. Walk in with a twenty dollar note and get a twenty dollar gold coin. Whoa. And that was at your discretion. Man. That was what the note said. Wow. You know, if you look at a pre thirty three twenty dollar note, redeemable to the bearer on demand, twenty dollars in gold coin. How many? That was a wow. You know, that was a guaranteed contract between the public and the government. You talk you about know, uh, Disneyland, I, man. That you know, that's like. That's like fantasy land today, right? Whoa. Today it is, sure. I mean, nobody would have accepted paper money 100 years ago that wasn't backed by something. Now we accept it as just sort of the reality of the world. And, <laughs> you know, and look at what happens. That's why its value can change because it's not backed by anything anymore. And therein lies the fundamental problem. That's why I hearken back to, you know, let's own the actual money of America, the sure. sound, real form of currency gold and silver itself but i'm curious so knowing what you know and you've been at this a long time before we go here and and what these loony politicians are liable to do uh, just to keep it going i mean I, i'm curious why you use the term that you recommend having a, a portion a little of someone's wealth and gold i mean why wouldn't you use the term a lot knowing what you know well, I'd say because you're not going to use gold and silver coins for day-to-day -day commerce. It's right. more about a storage of wealth for the future. Right. Inflation doesn't take away your money tomorrow. It takes it away over the course of a year or three years or five years. So right. it's more about long-term wealth protection. And for the, for the reality of addressing day-to-day -day commerce, you need to conduct commerce in what is currently used. as No, I understand. What I'm talking about is, is folks, big chunks. Say they've got half a million dollars in stocks you know i mean stocks who knows what could happen to stocks in the next few years would you be better off selling those and buying gold safer you know the answer is yes um <laughs> but again i'd like to say that my experience has taught me that it's always about diversification right and i don't think being heavily weighted in any one market is is really the best way to go even and gold even gold even gold, as much as I'm a fan of it. And sure. again, I, I, I'm the opposite of what most people do. I, you know, where most people would have, let's say, 20% of their money in gold and silver, 80% in stocks and bonds and cash. Yeah. I'm the other way around. But that's because I, you know, of this kind of conversation we're having, I do believe that a <laughs> right. larger portion should be in it. But for most average but you don't people, recommend I, it, I think, you don't recommend it. I don't. I think it's about diversification. You know, we went through periods where popular investments faltered. You know, in the 80s, everybody was into mutual funds and everybody believed that that's where you wanted to be. And people went heavily weighted in that until the market crashed. And, you know, those that were not diversified lost a huge portion of their wealth. Some never recovered. And then it was the stock market that became popular. And then that crashed. And then it was the real estate market that became, again, the safe haven that everybody should invest in. And people that went too heavily positioned in those markets, you know, ended up getting hurt. So... I don't expect that there's going to be some dramatic change. I mean, unlike a crypto that would lose 50% of its value in a couple of weeks, you're never going to wake up tomorrow and find gold has dropped from 1,800 to 900 an ounce overnight. It's yes. never going to happen. Not happen. So you've got stability there. But even given all that, I just believe it's about diversifying so that no matter what happens, we're spreading the money around so that we benefit no matter what occurs in the economy. And that's why I think it should be a percentage rather than like everything that people owns. Yeah. Did I, I was reading um, a couple of days ago or the Biden administration and whoever's running them, they're going to come out with some big announcement about their position 
on cryptos. It's coming soon. I don't know what they're going to say. Well, I, I've said this from the beginning. Regulation is going to be a big problem for the crypto world. The more it's regulated, the less appealing it's going to be. My other issue has been the fact that so much of the cryptos are in the hands of so small a number of people. Like the largest percentage of Bitcoin, for example, is in less than 5% of the people that own Bitcoin. Is that and, right? You know, if that turns out to be a situation where those people decide they want to sell their positions, that entire market will take a huge hit. Look how fast those values plummeted. And again, this is the nice thing about owning gold and silver is that you've got a worldwide market. It's been around for you know thousands of years. It's spread amongst various countries and banks and individuals and institutions. And nobody has a controlling share or interest in the entire world's market that could devastate its value overnight by selling their position. So uh, I think regulatory issues are going to be a fundamental problem for cryptos going forward. And I do believe, and I've said this before, that I think there's going to be a $10,000 transaction rule implemented any day. What do you mean uh, 10000 To explain, well, what is that? Remember how they, how they dealt with when they wanted to stop people from spending large amounts of paper cash yes, sir. that wasn't being reported. What yeah. they did is they made the transaction itself reportable. 10000 or more. To, right, 10000 or right, more. They right. didn't have to figure out where the money came from or mm -hmm. how you earned it mm -hmm. or who you're giving it to that transaction itself became reportable right so by doing that they stopped a lot of illegal cash transactions because you can't give me a hundred thousand dollars worth of cash whether I, I then go down to my bank and deposit that without reporting it oh you, they say so, dear freddie our freddie just put in a hundred thousand dollars so I just want you to know, dear IRS or whoever they send it to. File this 1088 form. And yeah, so okay. that gets reported. I think they'll do the same thing with crypto. So ah. regardless of where you got your crypto or how much you have or who you're dealing with, if you want to buy a car for $40,000 and want to pay with Bitcoin, that transaction itself is going to become reportable. Of course. So the car dealer will have to take of your course. name and social security number and tell the IRS that you paid in crypto. But I think the only people this affects are people who are going into crypto with the idea that they're not going to pay taxes on their profits, which in my opinion is just not a good idea. No, it's not. It's and not. I, you know, I've heard from people who think that they're going to be able to not work anymore uh, because they're going to make so much money on their, you know, cryptos keep going up, keep going up, keep going up that I'll just buy crypto and never have to work anymore because I'll make so much money on the increasing price. Again, I, well, I've known I people where that happened, but that they got in in ten years ago. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And again, if you got into the early part of any kind of market, great. And Good I'm for very you. happy for those people. <laughs> it's wonderful. But you still yeah, have they, to pay they, taxes on it. I mean, you're supposed to. Of course. I mean, I don't want to tell you what to do, but don't of try course. this. Yeah, you got to pay taxes. And they scored, but the idea of of, of that as a plan uh, doesn't really seem to me to be a sure. bright way for people. About well, I mean, though, I mean, I mean, I've been reading that the government's going to take care of me and give me some vet coins and I sure. can just sit home and eat Cheetos and buy cryptos. Just kidding. All right, Freddie, we're going to go. Hey, Thanks a lot. <laughs> it was fun having you on as always. Uh, tell folks what they might see on your website if they go there. Yeah, actually, there's a lot of great information on the website. And if they go to the Facebook link on the Web page, uh, there are a number of these podcasts that we've posted so that people can review this type of information and, cool. you know, do some homework and research for themselves. And, you know, again, feel free to call us. We've got a really well-educated staff that will help walk you through the process. 
of how to properly accumulate gold and silver coins. Well, there you go. See, uh, what a good job. You uh, take care of yourselves. USCoinCapital.com. Fred, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Be happy, be healthy. Be happy, be healthy. Take care and stay out of trouble. Okay. See you soon. (laughs) Fred Dasheski in the real world of money indeed. He's a nice guy. So check it out. Yeah. I had a dream with Andrew Goss last night that was really interesting. First time I've actually had a dream experience with him. I forgot to tell Fred about that. No, yep, he's doing fine. Isn't that interesting? First time uh, Andrew left, uh, what, three years ago? Yeah, I think in late January 21st, something like that. But uh, yeah, had a dream experience with him, and he's doing great. He says, hi, I'm channeling Andrew with the uh, ongoing rewrites of the Real World of Money screenplay. Having fun with that and getting close to sending it out to a lot of people. Well, we will see you in about half an hour. We're live here. It is uh, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, Wednesday, and we're going to talk with a gentleman who has written a book called Who We Are. America's Fight for Universal Progress from Franklin to Kennedy. Oh, Ben Franklin to John F. Kennedy. And he's kind of concerned that the U.S. is kind of going a little nuts here talking to saber-rattling with Russia. His name is Anton Shapkin. I believe that's the way we pronounce it. I'll find out before we go on the air. And that's going to happen about noon here, Central Time, 1 Radio network.com. Thank you for your ongoing support. We appreciate it. Uh, please go to our website sometime and you feel like looking around. Look at Sir Thrival, Shen Blossom, our Aqua Cure Machine, our, uh, our Laxfar Infrared Sauna, the best sauna ever for $12.95, delivered lower 48. All the different folks that uh, we do, the Aloe, uh, the Blue Shield, wonderful technology, uh, the Bio, Bio, um, What's it called? I, you know, I never look at the label. Oh, Bio Superfood. This really, really good product. Uh, this uh, BioShield works great. Sulfur. Sell a lot of that. The Pearlseum product for your teefies. Shen Blossom, as I mentioned. Andrea Seed Oils. I've been taking these oils every day for the last two months. Uh, feeling better. My skin is looking better and better. I do black cumin seed and black sesame seed. Really nice product. Really nice product. So, cool. We got some a wonderful air purifier called the Air Doctor. Michael Water, early warning report, Richard Mayberry. So great, great um, people that we promote, and that's how we support ourselves. So if you feel like supporting our, our little show, uh, just um, go on one radio network, go into our store on the front page, See what you might like and have a party. I'll see you in about half an hour. <laughs> Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is one radionetwork.com. <laughs>